Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Well, once again, good evening, tēnā koutou, and welcome to another Auckland Conversations event. As many of you will already know, these events are a wonderful opportunity to inspire and stimulate your thinking about the challenges facing Auckland. And certainly one of the biggest challenges facing the city is homelessness. So tonight we focus on Housing First, a new approach to homelessness. So thank you for joining us tonight. It's fantastic to see such a good turnout. And welcome to those joining us for the live streaming. I'm Greg Ward. I'll be your MC and moderator for the evening. And we do have a great lineup, including our guest speaker, Dr. Sam Samberis, and our four panellists who I will introduce shortly. We're also delighted to have the Mayor Phil Goff join us tonight, and Councillor Penny Hulse is also with us. But first, the housekeeping. In the very unlikely event of an emergency, an alarm will go and you will be guided slowly from the room by the ushers. Bathrooms, as you leave the room, they are on your right. And finally, anyone with a mobile phone, please could you turn it now to silent. We have special welcomes this evening for all the councillors and local board members joining us. Now these include councillors Desley Simpson, Wayne Walker and John Watson. We'd also like to acknowledge our event sponsor, Heart of the City. Our thanks also to the Auckland Conversations partner sponsor, Razine, and another big thank you to our program supporters. They include Brookfield's Lawyers, Buffer Miskill, Architectural Designers New Zealand, the New Zealand Institute of Architects, New Zealand Planning Institute, and the New Zealand Green Building Council. Now, a reminder of what you can all look forward to this evening. The format tonight will be a presentation from our guest speaker, Dr. Sam Samberis, followed by a discussion with our four panellists. You are welcome to tweet during the event using hashtag AKLConversations. Hashtag AKLConversations for the tweeters. You can also ask questions via Twitter. The hashtag AKL Conversations feed will be monitored. And if time allows, we'll include questions during the panel discussion and the Q&A. We always try to ensure the Auckland Conversations events are inclusive and accessible. And with that in mind, a full transcript and captioning of the presentations and discussions will be available on the Auckland Conversations website in the next few days. Shortly, we'll begin the conversation, but right now it's my pleasure to introduce the Auckland Mayor, Phil Goff. A round of applause. Inga mana, inga reo, e rorangatira ma, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tato katoa. Thank you very much uh, for the introduction, Greg, and uh, can I start off first by welcoming uh, Dr. Sam Sembrus uh, here tonight. I think we first met a couple of years ago, Sam, in Parliament when we talked about the very things that we're talking about tonight. 
and I want to thank you for the inspirational work that you did with Pathways in New York and actually being the founder of the Housing First uh, philosophy which we are celebrating tonight. Welcome, welcome back to New Zealand. Uh, can I also acknowledge uh, our distinguished panel tonight? Uh, Viv Beck, Chief Executive of Heart of the City, Moira Lawler uh, as the Chief Executive of LifeWise, Ro Hoskins from uh, Te Matapatihi, uh, and Graham Bodman from Auckland Council, and Graham for also for your long track record of working in social housing. Uh, to all of the NGOs and to the individuals present here, uh, NGOs including LifeWise, Auckland City Mission, Affinity Services, Link People, uh, Vision West, and no doubt many others, thank you for your vision for a better city without homelessness, and thank you for your commitment to striving for that goal. Can I acknowledge our councillors, uh, Penny Hulse here today, uh, Wayne Walker I saw, Wayne somewhere here, yep, uh, John Watson and Desley Simpson. Uh, I think we've got some local board members here, Pippa Coombe usually comes to these things, the chair uh, right in front of me, uh, can't see for looking. Uh, welcome Pippa and Adriana Christie and Richard Northey from the Waitamata local board and perhaps some other members that I haven't acknowledged. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think back to the Auckland that I grew up in. I've got to say, as a young person in this city, I wasn't aware of homelessness, nor was I aware of begging. It's something that actually came as a shock to me when I visited places like Skid Row in New York and the Embankment in London. I was appalled by what I saw in those places. And I celebrated the fact that I'd grown up in a New Zealand which was still then committed to a strong welfare state where state housing was seen as a guarantee of every New Zealander having access to a decent roof over their head. We were confident, perhaps too confident, that we could fairly meet the needs of all New Zealanders. And perhaps the sense that I had of that time was too idealised. But today, we see the harsh reality of people sleeping rough all over our city, with City Mission calculating that there are around 179 people sleeping rough within a three kilometre of sky, the Sky Tower. Chronic homelessness seems to be much more embedded, and the problems that contribute to that, mental illness, addictions, and poverty. The homelessness problem is, of course, much broader than that. Maybe, according to the 2013 census, uh, involving over 20,000 people who could be broadly defined as being without a home in Auckland. And with the unprecedented growth of our city and the failure of housing supply to keep up with demand, Auckland has become, in housing terms, the fourth least affordable city in the world. That was not a title we were seeking. The Kiwi dream of home ownership seems more and more remote. Rental prices rising at four times the average rate of inflation means that a lot of our low-income families are paying more than half of their household income in rent. And at the bottom of the heap, 
We're seeing people doubled up in houses, sleeping in garages, in cars, and out on the streets. Housing New Zealand is no longer seen as a key player in ensuring stable and affordable houses for all, and the number of state houses per capita has diminished sharply and steadily over time. Tonight I'm not focusing on the wider housing challenge, but I do note that our failure to build more than a fraction of the affordable houses we need today is a significant contributing factor to that, and I have a housing task force looking at how we can lift both the pace and the scale of building to better balance the supply of housing with the growing demand for it. What I want to focus on in the last couple of minutes of my comments is the joint initiative that Minister Amy Adams and I announced this morning. And we formally announced our commitment to Housing First, working in partnership with five community organisations, all of whom have a track record of commitment to housing the homeless and competency in doing so. Housing First is a proven, effective way to address chronic homelessness. As you know, it works on the philosophy that the very first thing that you must do to deal with homelessness and the problems associated with it is to place a person or a household in a stable place they can call home. And equally important, the next step, to ensure that you build around that individual or family the wraparound services to deal with the problems that contributed to their homelessness, whether it's alcohol or drug addiction, mental illness or simply poverty. Our goal with Housing First and what we announced this morning is to work with those five housing organisations over the next two years to house over 470 homeless Aucklanders. The success of what we do in this pilot programme is critical so that we can ensure the sustainability of the Housing First programme here in Auckland. We know from experience internationally, and we know from experience much closer to home, the, people, uh, the, the uh, People's Project in Hamilton, that a successful Housing First approach will result in over 90% of those people who are sleeping rough and that we have housed will still be in that house 12 months down the track. The pilot is funded by government to the tune of 3.7 million and by Auckland Council to the tune of a million dollars with I hope a further commitment in this coming budget from Council of half a million dollars a year so that we can provide the coordinating services for the Housing First project. This money from central and local government is a vote of confidence in the organisations in the social sector that we are partnering with. It's a start and it is significant, but over time, clearly, we need to do much more. I hope, in fact, by the success of this programme, that we can draw in the private and the business sector to support financially our Housing First programme. All of us want a city that we can be proud of, a city that is inclusive, 
and a city that is committed to ensuring a decent life for all of its people. And a decent life starts with stable, affordable and healthy housing. I welcome the government's commitment. I thank the social sector for their commitment. And I thank Auckland Council, and can I just single out two councillors involved in the committee that will be dealing with this, Councillor Penny Hulse and Councillor Cathy Casey, who have a long-standing commitment to dealing with this problem. Thank you, councillors, and thank you, Graham, for you and your team for your support and your vision. I hope that all of you find the panel discussion tonight informative, and I know that we will find the comments that Sam Sembrus makes tonight uh, not only informative but uh, inspirational as indeed his work has been over many, many years. Working together, I believe that we can create a city that all of us can be truly proud of. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mayor Phil Goff. Well, now it's my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker for the evening, Dr. Sam Simberis. Sam founded Pathways to Housing in New York City back in 1992. He's on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. During his time there, he developed the Housing First model. Housing First provides immediate access, and this is the key, immediate access to permanent supportive housing for people who are homeless and who have added challenges such as mental health or addiction problems. The Housing First approach has been operating internationally since the early 1990s, and the good news is it's been evaluated as one of the most effective programs available for addressing homelessness. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm round of applause, please, for Dr. Sam Timberis. Thank you, Greg. Um, Mr. Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, members of the council, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here this evening to uh, be celebrating with you this uh, initiative of Housing First Auckland. It's remarkable uh, to be back in your very beautiful country. Uh, only uh, 18 months uh, after the initial visit here, where uh, the idea of talking about Housing First was uh, conceptual and seemed like a good thing to do. And here we are 18 months later with uh, a government commitment, an NGO commitment, to start this uh, rather significant and impressive uh, initiative. And uh, it's uh, having met over the last four days with the people who will be uh, working in it, I, I can assure you uh, that we're in for some great results. I thought that uh, it might be useful to um, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure because, you know, explaining housing first is, is very simple. And I was thinking maybe it would be useful to uh, talk to you a little bit about um, why we, it took so long, you know, why we've had homelessness for as long as we've had and how we're going to go about uh, solving it. 
uh, just to give you a bit of a historical perspective uh, that might uh, help us also to mm, avoid uh, the mistakes of the past and take the lessons learned uh, going forward. There, there, there are many reasons we've had homelessness since the early 80s in America and 90s in Canada and Europe and, and as it's trickled uh, over into Australia and New Zealand. But I would say there are two major reasons uh, that I would like to focus on this evening. One of them is that uh, because homelessness has been part of the landscape for so many years, decades, that we have learned now an entire generation of people sitting in this room, people under 25, uh, have grown up believing that homelessness is part of the landscape and that they have learned also uh, from the teaching of their parents that uh, it's better not to look at people who are homeless. We have all of us learned to avoid uh, staring it out of politeness, out of respect, out of the pain that it causes to see someone on the street suffering, we have learned to look away. And similarly, the people who are homeless have also learned to hide. So there's been a, a mutual social contract, unspoken, where we have not really been looking at this problem. And I'm, I'm happy to say that this initiative to me, signals the beginning of looking the other way. It's a difference between um, the, the child being told, no, no, because the child's response actually is, is what has shut down. When you're walking down the street and you are with a child who is nine or younger, I, their, their natural response is shock. And uh, why is this person here? And the parent will say, um, don't look now, uh, let's walk the other way, avoid this. And in that communication, uh, they have learned over, over time to walk away. Shutting down a part of their humanity, of their natural human response of the shock that we all initially felt but have learned to turn off. That's the price, I think, psychologically that we pay in tolerating homelessness. It's costing us part of our humanity in allowing it to continue. So I want to thank each and every one of you who are here tonight because you are not looking the other way. You are here to, to talk about this issue, to face this issue, to celebrate a community-wide commitment to looking at homelessness and, you know, Acknowledging that there's a problem and looking at it is step one to progress. So thank you for that. The other, the other problem, the major problem, is really historical. And it goes back to uh, when homelessness started to begin with and, and why it started and what our response was. Now, the mayor said he uh, grew up in an Auckland uh, where there wasn't homelessness because homelessness wasn't really part of the lexicon until the early 80s. Homelessness was um, episodic. There were people that were homeless during the Great Depression, but, but this era of homelessness as we have it in the Western world is really credited to uh, a Mr. Ronald Reagan from California. And if any of you had the um, 
opportunity to see his uh, biography. Uh, he is at one point in this uh, public broadcasting corporation uh, biography of, uh, of uh, Ronald Reagan credited with the creation of homelessness. How did it happen in the early 80s? Well, the Reagan administration uh, had a policy of uh, supply-side economics, trickle-down theory, some of these terms that you've heard about, if you make wealthy people wealthier, then the wealth will somehow fall out of their pockets and the rest of us will also benefit by the uh, pennies that, uh, that we can find on the street just following rich people. Uh, well, I'm oversimplifying it, but I'm not an economist, I'm, I'm a psychologist. So That theory resulted in uh, a public policy that was a disaster on many levels, but particularly for social services and what is called in the states public housing or social housing, affordable housing. The government in the United States stopped building public housing in the early 1980s under that administration. They went from building 350,000 units a year to 50, where it continues to remain today. Uh, no administration since then has ever recommitted to that. The failure to support people who are poor by having social or public housing was a, uh, taken uh, as a warning to those that were on the margins. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, we began to see people who uh, were homeless literally on the streets of, of the major cities, Los Angeles and Chicago, Detroit, New York. And the people that were most immediately and most uh, brutally affected by this policy were people that were on fixed income. This same policy was adopted by uh, Maggie Thatcher, uh, Mulroney in Canada. Years later, there was a kind of a, a similar uh, policy approach in Western countries. And that approach began to create income disparity uh, across these countries. The United States uh, uh, difference between the rich and the poor in the 70s was somewhere around 30%, and now it's up around 55. Uh, New Zealand is, looks more like Scandinavia in that regard, that there's, uh, there's some income disparity, but it's on the lower end of the scale. And I would encourage uh, you to think about the policies that would keep that disparity as low as possible because as income disparity increases, homelessness increases, poverty increases, and also a government's commitment to building social services decreases. So it's a, it's a perfect storm for those that aren't doing well. When the people who suffered uh, with the lack of economic support began to appear on the street, what was clear about them was they had uh, additional problems uh, besides poverty, people with mental illness, people with addiction, and there was a public outcry to do something about the people that were literally raining out of the sky and onto the streets. And the response was uh, an emergency response, like, like the Red Cross uh, after a hurricane uh, that we were having significant problems and these people looked ill and we have to take care of them. And these armies of caretakers that included social workers and nurses and doctors did what they know best, you know, doctors without borders. Only they didn't have to go outside their own borders to do the treatment. It was a small nation in internal exile in their own country that needed the treatment. Uh, 
And they did the best they could to treat them, believing that treatment was the way back to housing. They had assumed that it must have been the mental illness or the addiction that caused the housing, not a misguided social policy that resulted in homelessness. So the industry that built up over the years to address homelessness was actually founded on a misdiagnosis of what the problem actually was. No amount of fixing people, of curing people, of counseling or addiction treatment was going to help them to pay the rent or to have access to housing. So the intervention was helpful but did not address the core issues of the problem. The investment in emergency housing, uh, transitional housing, um, all kinds of programs aimed at improving the individual, often also believed to have made some poor decisions on their own. So it was not only improving their clinical uh, status, but it was also about improving their judgment in some way. Somehow the person was responsible for their homelessness, and we sought to help them understand what responsibility was about. It worked. Uh, it worked uh, well for many who could tolerate uh, and manage the treatment and eventually get into supportive housing, but not for all. There was a small group uh, of people that remained stubbornly on the street, uh, could not or would not manage the treatment first, then housing approach. This group of people uh, that actually represents only a small percentage of all people who are homeless, maybe 15 or 20 percent, is the group that in the public's mind and then in the media's reporting and in the public policy realm became the group that represented homelessness and the problems of homelessness, uh, which it only represents a portion, leaving out families, youth, and other groups that are homeless or at risk of homeless uh, as well. But this is the group that most people think of as the issue with homelessness. This group that stayed out of the uh, treatment system that could not make it uh, can be thought of as outliers. They, uh, they didn't fit in. They didn't fit in for any number of reasons. And uh, outliers, we have a, a great, um, we have a great debt to uh, outliers in all, in all uh, social sciences because outliers, Dr. Singh tells us, teach us the, the normals, the normals in a population teach us the rules. If you do this, then uh, if you give the person aspirin, their, their fever goes down. That's, that's the norm. It's the outliers that teach us what doesn't work. And this group of people who had remained homeless for a long time were the outliers in a social service treatment response that taught us what was wrong with the existing system. These were the folks that helped us to understand the flaws in our logic in approaching a complex problem with a treatment-first approach. It was this group that was fundamentally responsible for helping us to develop the housing-first approach because this group understood and could articulate what it was that made sense to them from their own perspective. So the first thing to, about Housing First is that it was not ever an intervention that 
uh, was designed in a uh, conference room or uh, in a planning room and visited upon homeless people. Housing First is fundamentally an approach, approach to working with people who are homeless that includes them in every aspect of the conversation. What they want, what their preferences are, what their priorities are, and the program is actually designed to honor those preferences. It's a ground-up intervention that uh, the people on uh, the streets of New York City would be very pleased to be here this evening seeing it being adopted you know, all the way in New Zealand. But it came from the streets by people living on the streets. And frankly, I think that's why it's so effective. It's a very consumer-driven, client-driven approach that works well in most businesses, including the social service business. The program has uh, five uh, dimensions. Uh, client choice is a, is a core part of it. Uh, the person uh, is invited to articulate their preference in the sequence that they want and uh, what matters to them most. That's how we got to housing first. Most people who were homeless, these outliers that we spoke to, were most interested in a place to live first. So housing first, not because we thought it was a good idea, it was the thing that was most urgent to the people on the streets. The philosophy of self-determination is a very uh, core uh, dimension of the program. And self-determination means empowerment to make decisions and be heard. Uh, Self-determination means having a uh, voice, a, a democratic process of working with people where they have a say-so in the treatment. And it also includes a dimension that some have called distributive justice, which is if you're working with people who are poor and they have other problems in addition to the poverty, it's useful to address the other problems as well, but if you're going to provide a comprehensive approach, you also need to address the poverty. It's not enough to just give counseling to someone who is poor and suffering with addiction. You also need to pay their rent. The type of housing that people wanted when given the choice was a place of their own. People wanted a real home. They didn't want to live in a program. They didn't want to live in housing where also social workers lived uh, for treatment. They wanted to live in housing and go to treatment, maybe. There was a clear... Uh, feeling of not wanting to be identified as needing special housing or being uh, in some other ways identified as people in need of uh, treatment. The idea of social inclusion is woven uh, strongly into that. So people had their own place, typically an apartment of their own, and they had people visiting and uh, supporting and treating and helping them with all of their other needs, a program that is housing first, but not housing only, and includes all of the supports that the person needs. If people lose housing, uh, if they need to relocate, if they are evicted because from the streets, they, uh, their friends moved into the house with them because they couldn't refuse them, uh, the treatment team will work with the person and find another place a place that often people do better at the second time because they've learned a lesson from the first time. It's not a program that is punitive so that if people make a decision, which they're encouraged to do, and make a mistake and fail at it, their failure is seen as an opportunity to learn how to do it better the next time. 
And in fact, people that go to a second apartment in this program often do better than they did in the first. So that the learning is part of it, we have to allow the dignity of failure for the person to have that opportunity to learn. But the commitment is not to the apartment. If the person loses housing, the, the support team will follow them. If the person gets arrested, if the person goes to the hospital, uh, whatever disruptions there are in housing, the commitment is to stay and work with that person for as long as they need it. So that the housing first, sometimes misnamed, is really fundamentally about people first. It's a commitment to work with that person in a constructive, uh, helpful way until they find their way and don't need our help anymore. Another dimension of the program is uh, recovery orientation and a support uh, for uh, social inclusion. This is uh, particularly relevant here because of the cultural um, the cultural sensitivity and respect to the Maori culture. I have not uh, learned enough about it, but the little I have learned uh, about Maori culture, it seems a, um, a wonderful fit uh, from a values perspective with an, a, an approach that is about self-determination, that includes whanau, whanenga tanga, and other uh, concepts that are about family, kinship, connectedness. Uh, it is very much in the spirit of community and social inclusion. So that, and this is an important consideration given that the people who are really uh, targeted by this Housing First Initiative Auckland, uh, majority, vast majority uh, Maori uh, descent. So that, uh, and it may look different and it may be shaped in, in other ways in terms of housing choice and, and the way that the services and the type of services are determined. But these principles of choice and separation of housing and recovery orientation are general enough and I believe can be applied and adjusted to fit the cultural needs and preferences of the people that they serve and the people that are working here. Just a couple of more comments about uh, this approach, which is, uh, one is that it's an evidence-based approach. Uh, I think the reason that I'm here talking to you today is that uh, this program has been studied a great deal. Um, in small and large studies, uh, the largest, I would say, most recently, was a study that was done in Canada, where uh, there was a national implementation. It was five cities, not five organizations like we have here, but similar structure. Uh, a large number of people, 2,000 Canadians plus, were randomly assigned to either the treatment first then housing approach that I described earlier, or to the housing first and then treatment approach, and they were followed for 24 months. The results of that study showed that the people in the housing first approach were stably housed quickly and stayed housed about 80% of the time, and the people in the stairway approach only made it to about 40% of the time. This was a huge uh, difference in outcomes for social science studies that are usually much smaller percentages. 
There were significant improvements in the quality of life of the people in the Housing First program. Uh, there were some cost offset uh, settings. One of the things that isn't commonly understood about homelessness is that it's really, really expensive. Uh, it's really expensive for the people who are experiencing homelessness. They have nowhere to put their food. They have to buy uh, food all the time from uh, the, uh, the grocery stores or things that they, they cannot store. Uh, everything uh, is, is, is at an expense for them. They are struggling uh, daily economically. But strangely, what we think of as homelessness and disconnection, it comes also at enormous cost to taxpayers in the sense of the services that are not uh, perhaps visible on a daily basis are typically acute care services that are very expensive. People get sick or they get into accidents, they are in emergency rooms, they are in inpatient services, they are transported by the police, uh, they are going to soup kitchens and other programs. If you tally up the cost of someone being homeless that is needing services over the course of a year, it can easily come to one or $200,000 a year in services alone. And this Canadian study and other studies that have looked at the uh, frequent users of acute care services uh, report the same kind of data. Putting a person in an apartment with the support services, which ranges anywhere between fifteen dollars and $25,000 per person per year, and results in a tremendous uh, cost offset on the reduction of the acute care services. So yes, it's an intervention that may cost money, but is it actually costing us any money overall? And the answer is no, it's actually saving us money in, in addition to everything else. One of the um, challenging conversations about Housing First is can we, um, can we find enough affordable housing in Auckland to house uh, 450 people in the course of the next two years? And the question of the affordability of housing is a, is a large and important question. Uh, the, the answer uh, you know, you've already heard from the mayor is that we don't have enough social or affordable housing overall if we're going to address the 20,000 people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. But an initiative that is only focusing on 400 people, 200 people a year, we can find 200 vacant apartments tonight. So the scale of the program, because it's focused very narrowly on this small subsample of homeless folks, is totally manageable with the right rent supplements in the current housing market. It will solve homelessness for those 200 individuals. It will not solve the larger issues and policy issues of affordable housing in Auckland or New Zealand. That is a separate and very important conversation. But we don't need to solve the large question in order to help these people on the streets today. The, um, the most, uh, one of the more promising aspects of uh, this intervention is that because you have been um, so uh, sensible uh, and in managing uh, not to have the kind of income disparity experienced by other nations, 
the actual number of people that are chronically homeless in your city and in your country is rather small. And small is great <laughs> because it's a solvable and uh, manageable problem. And I think tonight you are beginning the initiative that will actually end chronic homelessness in New Zealand. And I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. That was a fantastic presentation offering really valuable insights, and we do appreciate your time here in Auckland tonight. As Sam pointed out, we are just at step one on the journey towards finding a solution. Well, it's time now for this evening's panel discussion, where we can talk more about homelessness in the Auckland context. And it's time to invite the four guest panelists to the stage. We'll bring them up one by one. I would like to invite first Viv Beck. Welcome along, Viv. Viv is the Chief Executive. Maybe give her a round of applause as well. Viv is Chief Executive of Heart of the City, the business association representing and promoting businesses located in the city centre with the overall aim of fostering its economic success. Heart of the City is committed to developing a central city that's a thriving place. A thriving place to do business is accessible, vibrant, and generally a great place to be. So welcome along. Our second panelist is Ro Hoskins. Welcome along, Ro. Ro is the chairperson of Te Matapihi, the National Māori Housing Sector Body. He's also a board member of Community Housing Aotearoa and Urban Design Panel Member for Auckland Council and the Tamaki Regeneration Company. Roe is a founding director of Design Tribe Architects. He specialises in the design of both urban and rural papakainga or Māori housing projects. Number three on the list today, welcome along Moira Lawler. Moira is the Chief Executive of LifeWise, with responsibility for a diverse range of health, education and social services, and collaborative community projects. Moira has a background in community and economic development. She's a board member of the Community Housing Aotearoa, the peak body for community housing providers. LifeWise is working with the Auckland City Mission to provide the first Housing First program in the Auckland City Centre. And fourth and finally, Graham Bodman from Auckland Council. <laughs> Graham is General Manager, Arts, Community and Events at Auckland Council. Graham has responsibility for Council's operational homelessness response and support activity. He's been leading Auckland Council's contribution to Housing First initiative. Prior to joining Council, Graham worked in the social housing sector with particular interest in developing new solutions to address homelessness in Auckland. Well, thank you all panellists for your time this evening. And let's begin with a question for Sam. Sam, we all know that homelessness is far more complex than simply rough sleeping. 
what do you say to people who are expecting or looking forward to a fast solution? Fast solution. I might just grab the microphone for you there. Okay, that's right. So, what do we say to people who may be looking for a fast solution to the problem? Um, ending homelessness for almost anybody is a fast solution. If you are uh, providing housing first, you uh, you can house someone in a week. Uh, or 10 days, uh, it's immediate. But ending homelessness is not the same as solving uh, poverty or addressing addiction. Uh, because the solution to some problems is at a different time frame than the solution for other problems. So that I think it's important not to expect or even have the person who's moving into housing expect, which sometimes they magically do, that, okay, I'm housed, the problems are over. Being housed simply gives you a really good platform to actually begin dress addressing some of the more serious problems that are almost impossible to begin to address when the person is homeless and worried about survival. So there are quick fixes and others that need the support services that the program provides, it takes longer. Okay, so the good news is that pace may not be a problem. Let's look at one of the options, and this is an option that many people talk about, night shelters. What are your thoughts on the value of night shelters to address homelessness? I think night shelters are good for a night, <laughs> <laughs> but they're not really uh, the kind of uh, solution that um, is, is ending homelessness. There is, there's this concept of um, managing homelessness, which is what are we gonna do about the homeless tonight? Or what are we gonna do about the homeless immediately? And there's the, uh, that's, I would call that managing homeless. Oh, let's get a soup kitchen, let's get a shelter, let's get some blankets, managing homelessness. That could go on forever. And the person would still be homeless. There's a difference between managing homelessness and having a program that is aimed at ending homelessness. So if the shelter is where the person is staying while you are immediately looking for a place for them to live, that seems like a useful purpose for shelter, but not as an alternative to permanent housing. Sam and I were speaking earlier about the difficulties defining homelessness. And we were talking about the fact that across Auckland, we now have the sad sight of so many families living in cars, some families living in garages, because we have a housing crisis. So to what extent, if any, will housing first accommodate for the growing numbers who find themselves in a general housing crisis? Housing first got started uh, by working with the folks who were on the street and had complex problems. But it has been used uh, with families very effectively. It has been used with victims of domestic violence that have typically been required to go to shelters, but now they go to an alternative housing. It has been effectively used with young people, you know, 18 to 26, so that the housing needs remain the same for all of these different populations. The kinds of support services people will need are different depending on who you're housing. I think that 
Housing first means you're giving affordable housing to people, and some of those people will need supports. It's only a matter of political will about taking it to scale. And when you heard the numbers before about the numbers facing this housing crisis, what went through your mind, given the size of Auckland? Well, I think that you know, there's a housing planning. I don't know that New Zealand has a affordable housing strategy over the next three to five years. But listening to the mayor, you have, I had the impression that the population is outgrowing the housing supply, and there's a gap there that absolutely needs to be addressed. Sam, thank you. Moira, could we turn to you now? Moira, as we've just heard, leads LifeWise. It's one of several agencies under the banner of the new Auckland Housing First Collective. So I guess maybe we could get from you a brief overview of the collective and how Housing First as a model will be used in the Auckland context. Thanks, Moira. Yes, kia ora, Greg. Um, Essentially, as the Mayor said, there are five organisations involved in four projects across Auckland. That's LifeWise, the Auckland City Mission, Affinity, Link People and Vision West. And as the Minister announced this morning, we've been funded for two years, really to demonstrate what is possible with the Housing First model across Auckland. So it's the choice of the providers, actually, to put together a collective to do this in a more uh, inclusive and joined up way. So what the collective will do is enable us to have common training, uh, common assessment frameworks, common reporting uh, and monitoring tools, common communications, and an ability to learn from each other. And it's not just about sharing, it's also about taking a whole of systems approach because we know each of our agencies from our work with homelessness that there are systems issues that need to be addressed, and Sam was referring to some of those earlier. The collective enables us to look across the work in each of our projects at those systems issues and start to identify the improvements that are going to, needed, that are going to be needed to be successful. Thank you, Maura. The collective obviously has several agencies, several providers. Are there any obvious challenges you will face as you get underway working together? Uh, I don't think the challenges are so much in the establishment of the collective, although of course things are moving at pace and so uh, it's important across our organisations that we build the relationships that will be required. But I think in some ways that's the easy bit. We're really strongly committed to that and I think it will um, really enhance our work. I think one of the challenges is the term of our funding, this is a two-year demonstration project, so being able to evaluate and show what's possible in that time frame will be challenging, uh, but it's a challenge that we're really committed to meeting. Thank you. One more for you, Moira. Uh, homelessness in Auckland is clearly visible. Anyone who walked like I did tonight through Queen Street would see uh, evidence of homelessness. But what about the rest of Auckland? Um, to what extent will the Housing First approach reach all of Auckland? That's a good question because there are four projects funded uh, in this new program, in the new funding. They will work in central Auckland, in west Auckland and in south Auckland primarily. Uh, they will also focus on chronic homelessness. So I guess one of the challenges potentially with uh, the program is managing expectations. We are not funded to work with the 20,000 people that have been identified as severely housing deprived. We are being funded to demonstrate what's possible with identified cohorts. And part of that work that we will be doing, part of the 
opportunity actually for our work to make an international contribution is in the development of a Kopapa Māori framework for Housing First. So we're really excited about the potential in that. Moira, thank you. Ro, let's come to you now. Uh, homelessness in Auckland is very much a multicultural issue. Figures out last year from Auckland City Mission show that more than half, around 53% of rough sleepers are Māori. Around a third or 33% are European, 9% are Pacific and the rest unknown. So given that big number, more than half being Māori, what options do you believe will be available to the service providers trying to help the people you work with? Yes, it's, uh, it's ironic that in, in 1840 when Ngāti Whātua invited um, the establishment of uh, European um, settlement here in Auckland that there were zero uh, Māori homeless. In fact, uh, they were building the homes for the settlers at that time. And um, so it's an indictment on the colonisation process, obviously, that we are in that situation right now. I think the options that are before us are, are very encouraging, though. I think the fact that uh, Ngāti Whātua in particular are closely involved with the collective through affinity um, is very encouraging. And I think that the work that's been done already with the collective to customise the Housing First approach to include the Kaupapa Māori framework is very encouraging. And um, I guess um, where we're heading with that approach is the opportunity for Māori to be looking after Māori, iwi to be looking after iwi. And I think from a manakitanga perspective, um, manakitanga, the responsibility to look after visitors to your city, it's great to see Ngāti Whātua still looking after the people of, of Tāmaki. So there is some optimism from you, um, an acknowledgement that progress is being made. What are the key things that need to get done well in this first year? I think the ownership of mana whenua, there's 19 iwi groups across Auckland and I think the ownership of as many of those groups as possible in this model and their, their, their support for the model and I think their ongoing engagement with these issues, uh, particularly as we look at the wider issues of Māori housing stress, that, that includes making sure that iwi who are in settlement mode or post-settlement can, can be readily involved in um, papakainga developments in, in urban and peripheral areas of, of Auckland. I think the um, support um, frameworks uh, are there, but I think the challenge is to really um, build on um, the potential that we have with really close working relationships, such as is evidenced with the, uh, the collective that's been established. Thank you, Ro. Let's come back now to Sam. Sam, a question for you. If we could um, look at the role for private landlords, because they do have a, pro a role in the Housing First approach, but can you first elaborate on what that role might be? And secondly, what would you say to a property owner who might be thinking, well, this is all a little bit risky? So first, the role. Private landlords um, have just like the NGOs sort of doing the work of government, <clears throat> private landlords are in some ways in this model doing the work of uh, social housing. We don't have enough social housing and the social housing that there is available has uh, a tradition of keeping waiting lists. Now, somebody homeless is not gonna be successful in a waiting list kind of framework because there's no place to send them the notification that their name has come up on the list three years later. So, that was not an option. Uh, unless 
unless we um, have a different understanding about a prioritization scheme for social housing so it can be included in Housing First, which is possible. You can set aside a small percentage of units that is direct access without the list. Private landlords have been the main uh, source of uh, housing because we needed housing right away. The delivery of the program is immediate access and uh, the private market was where we found affordable in the low end of the market affordable. The way that we were able to work with landlords in that range is that uh, managing properties on the lower end of the income scale is a, is a bit of a challenge in that people are employed and they're not employed and so issues of steady rent collection and tenancy and support for the tenancy are without saying it out loud a constant worry of the landlord. The programs are going to offer the landlord the assurance of guaranteed rent, the assurance that there's someone to call if there's an issue with the tenancy, and uh, that if there's a damage to the unit that, uh, that they'll be uh, compensated or will be repaired. Those are uh, really stepping over and above what any good tenant would do, and it gives the program an advantage in renting some of those units uh, from private landlords. So your message of reassurance would be there is a guarantee and there is someone to call. Absolutely. Sam, thank you. Viv, thanks for your patience tonight. Question for you now. You head, of course, the heart of the city. Your focus is business. Um, we know your organisation has been active in advocating for solutions to end homelessness, and we know that collaboration from all corners is going to be critical. So can I ask first, how can downtown businesses and property owners, how can they play a role in resolving the problem? And I should say that talking to you a short time ago, I got the feeling you think progress is already being made. Uh, yes, I do, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, Homelessness is one of the most prevalent issues raised with us by business and um, property owners in the city centre. And so we were determined to find a way to be part of the solution, and that's how I came to hear Sam 18 months ago and get to know um, Moira. And interestingly, reflecting back um, only about nine months ago to the LifeWise um, big sleepout, um, I was invited to be on a panel um, a, a business panel talking about this very topic and I certainly didn't profess to be an expert but I checked my notes um, before I came along here to see what I said in response to the question how do we move beyond a once a year sleep out to working collaboratively to end homelessness and what I said I guess in typically pragmatic business fashion I said well we've got to set the goal and we've got to all be determined to end it rather than manage it so that was quite nice to hear you talk about that but it, it struck me that there were a lot of things that were sort of about managing rather than ending so point number one let's get the common goal, uh, work out a plan, uh, what do we need to do, who, who needs to be involved, how much will it cost, um, and then let's just get on with it now. So uh, that was one thing from that evening that I uh, recall, and the other one that I thought was a bit of a game changer actually was that Housing First was, you know, had been put up by um, LifeWise as a solution, and we had a new city missioner, Chris Farrelly, on board, and he stood up that night and said, you know what, it doesn't matter what brand we're from, if this is going to help people and end homelessness, we should get in behind it. And that, to me, was a really 
um, bright light of hope that we could actually work together to end this. So um, I'm really happy to be here on this panel tonight because in, you know, in just no, about nine months, we have actually seen action. And I know there'll be people in the audience that say, but look out there at what's happening. The reality is that we have got the social service providers working together towards a goal to end homelessness. Fantastic. We have uh, government money committed. Um, admittedly, it's you know might not be long term, but we're working. We'll work on that. Uh, the mayor and Auckland Council have absolutely jumped in behind this. And uh, can I say, um, in response to the earlier comment by the mayor, businesses have got in behind this. They have actually, through the city centre targeted rate, committed two million dollars to the upgrade of James Liston Hostel for emergency housing. So business is playing a role, and I think that there is an opportunity for us all to continue to work together. Um, we want to see these 472 people housed over that, um, you know, that the in that sort of pilot period. Uh, we want to find um, um, sustainable ongoing funding, and we just want to see results. So I, I'm feeling really optimistic, and I hope the people here who are not yet seeing anything do feel some comfort that there really is action underway. And just briefly, you do see some future continued role by business and property owners? Absolutely, I do. I think that um, the working together to a common goal is actually, uh, I think, the way to go. Thank you very much, Viv. Graham Bodman, Auckland Council, welcome along. Uh, Graham, of course, you and your colleagues are working with Auckland's homelessness in many ways. So a couple of questions for you tonight. How can local governments support a housing-first approach? And also, do you think that central government still has a role to play? Okay, well, well, thank you, Greg. Um, yes, local government does have a role to, uh, role to play, and uh, in fact, we're uh, playing that role right now. Um, you know, the, the mayor talked about it um, earlier on, where we've been um, we partnered with the Ministry of Social Development to put in a million dollars to uh, co-fund the uh, this pilot two-year pilot of Housing First, which um, is a you know quite a significant contribution, and I think it's the right thing to do. Um, so there's a funding option. We've been working, for instance, with LifeWise over the uh, last few months to actually give some funding to help them do the investigation to actually develop the case to actually um, um, support Housing First. So we've been working certainly in that funding space. Um, there's also, I think, a role that we've got in local government around civic leadership. So the, the mayor's been very supportive. Um, and. Uh, they've got an opportunity like we are today. So this is the Auckland Council event to actually shine the light on the on on the op, the problem and the uh, exciting work that's being taken to actually work collaboratively with local government central government uh, the ngo the business community and um, others to actually make a really um a significant push to really make a positive difference and uh, i think that's tremendously exciting so there's uh, a number of ways that uh, local government can and uh, is helping. Just in terms of uh, central government, yes, absolutely, um, central government's got a role. I mean, in fact, they've contributed the lion's share of the funding towards uh, supporting this Housing First initiative, uh, rightfully so. Um, and of course, housing, or I should say homelessness, isn't just an Auckland problem, it's actually a nationwide problem. Uh, it's a big problem in Auckland. Um, it's a societal problem. So. Uh, it's, it's bigger than any one of us, actually. Um, so, yep, we've all got a role to play. Thank you, Graham. Well, that's it from the panel for now, um, but they are now available to you for questions. So uh, we have about 20 minutes for questions. I'm happy to have them directed to anyone at the panel. If you do have a question tonight, please keep it brief. 
uh, make it very clear. You'll be handed a microphone, and anyone who does want to ask a question, just please raise your hand now. We have three ushers moving around the room. Each of them has a live microphone, so as soon as you get that microphone, you'll be on air. And already we have one with their hand raised in the right-hand side. So your question, thank you. Um, yes, my name's Angela Maynard. I'm from Tenants Protection Association, Auckland. Um, I see one problem with this whole program, and that is that in the Residential Tenancies Act, there is no security of tenure, which means that at any time, anybody can get a 90-day notice without a reason. They cannot go to the tribunal. They cannot challenge it. They're out. Well, that's fine in terms of if there's another, um, more accommodation for them to find somewhere else. But when you're involving the private sector, which I believe Housing First is, I think that remains a huge issue. And I'm not going to ask anyone on the panel what they're going to do about it, because really it's outside of their power. I'm going to ask Phil Goff. Is he still here? No. Oh, God. Well... <laughs> He's not here either. Well, maybe somebody could convey this to him, because when he was the person that introduced the Residential Tenancies Act in 1986, and at the time, housing workers throughout the country said there has to be a just cause for eviction, but he didn't take any notice of us. And so this has plagued residential tenancy law ever since. And what we need is a reason for an eviction. Okay, well, thank you so for those comments. Let's just see. Let's just see if finished. the panel would can like to respond. Can I just finish? Because this is really well, we important. We have a lot of people here. Tonight I know, but it'll only questions. take me one minute. And okay. that is, he's seconds. now in a powerful position, working with Amy Adams, where he can put pressure on her to do just that, to change, to amend the act, so that Housing First as a program can work better. Okay, thank you for your point. Would you like? Would anyone on the panel tonight like to respond to that? Thank you. <laughs> History is a valuable thing, and clearly he's the right guy to fix the mistake he created. Any other questions, please raise your hand nice and high. We have three ushers with microphones, and I think we have someone coming now in the centre. Right in front, front row, microphones on the way. Do you have a question for a panel member? Yes, um, well, I want to speak, not particular to anyone, but they, everybody can chip in what they think. One of the things is uh, I, um, tiny houses on public, on government land um, where people rent could be a solution before making, you know, while houses, while apartments and everything are being built. And... I've, I've talked to quite a lot of homeless people and the problem is that they can't get government assistance unless they have a, a permanent address. You know, that's what a lot of them are saying, that it's, it's impossible for them to get a benefit. And so that's a big problem for them. And also there needs to be a situation where there is an agency that when people are teetering on the losing their home, that they can call and get support, emotional support and everything. Because, you know, the tsunami of problems arise when they're actually kicked out. But, you know, there's a, people reach, can reach out to somewhere before they fall off the cliff. Okay, thank you. Uh, Moira, is that something you could respond to? I'm guessing you see this in, in your role. 
Yes, I mean, agencies like ours, like the agencies involved in the collective, um, provide addresses for people so that they um, can uh, receive the support that they're entitled to. Uh, and in fact, there are tiny house models overseas. Sam may want to comment. I guess, I mean, I, I have been part of conversations locally about tiny houses, and I'm open to any option that um, increases the housing mix, uh, as long as the housing is permanent. Because, you know, I have seen examples of people building communities of tiny houses, and for me, it's the community building that's as important as the style of house. Sam, tiny houses, was that something you would care to comment on? Tiny houses. Okay. <laughs> Short. In that case, more questions. We have one down here. I'm not sure where the microphone is. And we have a couple over there. Do we have a microphone on the far left? Yes, we do. So in the far left, we'll take a question there. Uh, my name's Andrea Rose McGregor. And I've got a... There have been references to involving um, the people who are currently homeless. What process is that going to, um, uh, how are we going to go about that? So what's the process? Is that something, Graham, you could talk about? The process for managing them? I think it might actually be better responded to by Moira in terms of the, uh, yeah. the, the operational response. Sure. Um, yes, our, we've been involved in a, a actually using a human-centred design process to uh, get to the stage of what we want to prototype in the Housing First model. And that process has included um, quite extensively people who are both currently rough sleeping and people who have lived experience of rough sleeping. So there's a lot of engagement in terms of working with people around what doesn't work now, what might work in the future, what might you like to see, but also um, core to the Housing First model is the employment of people with lived experience into your team so that that advice and expertise is part of your program. Thank you. One more on my left. Do we have a microphone on the left still? Just coming down now. Hi. Just a quick question. I'm Victoria Brown, my niece and great-niece. We've been providing food every Tuesday night for the last 10 months to Auckland, and we're feeding about 140 homeless people. In that time, we've provided coats, suits, food, uh, clothing, sleeping bags, you name, you name it. And in that time, not one agency, not LifeWise, not the police, not Ngāti Whātua, not the mayor, has come to our help and, and responded to our emails or anything to help. I think it's great, but I hope I don't stand here another two years and be saying the same question. Will it change? And how can we, as small organisations or private families, tap into this work that's being done? Because we've seen no one off. We've seen one person get off the street in ten months, and it's not not absolutely unacceptable. And I think the fact that most of them are Maori, and the young man up there. I thought your comments were actually out of out of step, given that Ngāti Whātua do nothing for them. All right, so you'd like a question to the panel. Uh, Ro, would you like to respond to that? It's not really a question. Um. All right, thank you for your comments. I think we have someone in the middle here. Please do, do if you can, have a specific question. We know there's a lot of passion and emotion, but we would really welcome specific questions. How can you tap in? Okay. 
how to tap into the help that's available. We'll try and address that for you now. There are, um, there are a range of groups across Auckland. I'm aware of ones in central Auckland, but I know there are a myriad of small and mid-sized groups across Auckland um, doing outreach, doing support. Uh, and, you know, I share the dream. It would be beautiful to be at the stage where that was not necessary. Um, you know, the, the definition of homelessness that we are working with is uh, the concept that homelessness will be rare, brief and non-reoccurring because people will always leave homes for uh, sometimes perfectly valid reasons, young people who leave a house that's unsafe, etc. So there will be people who end up on the street and our vision is that they will quickly be able to access services that provide them with secure housing. Uh, what is the role for the informal groups in this program. We haven't worked that out yet uh, and so we will be, as we get the collective moving and off the ground, engaging with others in terms of what is your part to play because as I say this is a whole system approach, that's where we're trying to head. Thanks Moira. Now I should point out that we do have a limited time tonight, we'll certainly take more questions but clearly there are some issues here that may go beyond our ability to answer them tonight. We can't answer everything. So for those who are interested I will give out a couple of addresses. You might like to pursue this with uh, council later. This isn't just a council issue but I do have a couple of useful email addresses. The first one is aucklandconversation at Auckland Council. .govt.nz. I'll repeat that, Auckland Conversation at aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Otherwise, please do a Google search for the Shape Auckland website where you can add your own comments. And we had a couple of questions down here. My apologies, that first one is Auckland Conversations at Auckland Council. Auckland Conversations at Auckland Council. Now, we have a The, we have one here, just here. Is there a microphone? All yours. Uh, hello. My name's um, Peggy Glover. I'm with Mātātou Marae. Um, we bound with Te Puya Marae to Afi the Homeless. And um, so I'm just, my question is, Te Puya Marae um, didn't just talk about it. They actually went out and actioned it and helped the homeless and um, housed and they took on a lot of government um, support and other funding supporters to help the, um, the struggles and the issues around all of house, um, homelessness. Is there any of those strategies that have been taken from Tapuya to be implemented in the policies that you are looking at and uh, trying to um, go move forward? Because they're very successful but they got closed down and really can't understand why because um, they were very, very successful. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Strategies. Uh, Ro, is there something you'd like to comment um, on? Tapuya um, Marae were going through building renovations and they had to um, discontinue their service and it was passed on to Manurewa Marae um, so they could embark on their building um, renovations. Um, I think the hope is that as the um, this pilot has progressed is that um, all our urban marae will actually be involved in in a um, governance role to actually make sure that the issues that they're experiencing, particularly, say, Manurewa and Marae, that they can actually feed in their experiences that they're having at the coalface. 
Thank you. Now down the front. The homeless men that I know out in uh, West Auckland are living in shacks or in sheds in the bush because they want to be somewhere where they can get a job occasionally. I, I can see the, the psychological reason for building the house, getting somebody into a house first, but the house has to be somewhere where there are jobs. And, and there are lots of jobs down the country where some of these men come from. Uh, sorry, there are, lots, there are houses and places, but there aren't any jobs, and that's why they've come to West Auckland and living in shacks and so on. So once again, is there a, a question there for the panel? For Dr. Well, it's Dr. Sam who has put the priority on the house, and I'd like to hear what he says about mm. the job situation. He's assuming that there is a job. Yes. Um, part of the conversation about where the person lives in this program is to ask them exactly that. It's, it's you know, that, that's what that choice refers to. Choice also refers to uh, location. So uh, if the person has a strong preference to live in not only another part of the city, but in another city altogether, we would help them find housing that would support what their other needs are. Sometimes it's a job, sometimes it's being close to another family member, but there is a, a, an emphasis on honoring the person's preferences for location. We don't do such a great job ourselves of finding people jobs when they're housed. That's, that's difficult. I think we could pay more attention to that. Thank you. Uh, question in the second row. Hi. Um, I just had a question about the 400, and I think it was just over 400 people that are going to be helped in this two-year pilot. Um, how do they feel about this program? Do you have their full support? Moira, perhaps? That's a good question. Uh, the, certainly in the program that we've been developing, uh, as we said earlier, we've spent a lot of time listening and talking with people who are currently homeless in Auckland City Centre. Uh, the Housing First model uh, is designed to be effective with people who are long-term homeless and for whom other models have not been effective. So, for example, uh, in the, the work that we did looking at people that LifeWise and City Mission is currently working with, people who have come to us for support, we did a quick look at, um, at, at the set of people that are currently um, as in our services, uh, and on average, those people had been homeless for seven years or more. So we are talking about people who are meet the definition of chronically homeless. So um, our program is, of course, a voluntary program. There's no compulsion. Uh, what we will be doing uh, is working with that group of people who are long-term homeless, who have uh, more than one issue in their life that is preventing them from sustaining housing uh, and offering them a service uh, within the numbers that we can manage to work with. So, but we've certainly had plenty of feedback from people who were saying, we're ready, when do you start? So that will be more of the issue with us, not finding people that want to work with us. Thank you, Moira. Can I, can I say something? Yes, of that? course. 
I just, um, I, I think that the 400 will probably come out of a larger group. So that, uh, but, but the program is really not anything mandatory. The, pro the, the program begins with an invitation to the person. So it's, here's this program, this is the work that does, would you like to participate in it? So we would find out, I think, how the person feels about it by their response to whether or not they want to be included in the program. Thank you. Down the front, we have a question. Uh, tēnā koutou, um, panel. Kia ora, Sam. Um, thank you um, for the Auckland Conversations. Pepper Coombe, Chair of the Waitamata Local Board. I would just like to acknowledge the many people in the room who've, who've been working in this space probably for many years. Um, and also in saying that, just to um, say how fantastic I think it is that this has happened so fast. I was at the presentation that Sam gave at LifeWise, um, I think, I'm sure it was only 18 months ago, and to see this happening so quickly is really awesome. So I did just want to acknowledge that, and, um, and it's very exciting that this has, has come together. Um, in thinking of a question, because I know it's getting a bit of a, a statement, but I just thought it would be nice to kind of... Um, but a, um, just to, to really acknowledge what has happened here and how, how exciting it is. Um, but I guess the question was, how, how are we going to um, bring everybody along with us by sharing the message of housing first? And clearly there's lots of agencies working in this space and individuals, and how can we kind of bring them on board with information sharing and so that people can really understand what housing first is all about so we can really share in, the, in this vision and, and get on board. Thank you. I think that's one of the key opportunities of the collective and why we're so pleased that both government and council have agreed to support the collective because where we've seen this work well in other countries, this becomes a movement. This is not individual organisations running little programmes. This is a movement of Aucklanders who are concerned enough about this issue to want to be involved and the collective is a key part of keeping the communication going, keeping the conversation going, keeping the invitation uh, for people to get involved. Can I just add to that? I mean, we, I think it is fantastic, and in a really short space of time, we're all talking about housing first, and I think that's the secret of it. The different groups have actually acknowledged, and I mean, I, I agree with the people that are raising those questions, but certainly as a, a bit of, you know, looking from the outside in, those have been things on my mind, and I'm seeing the group sort of work through some of those things quite genuinely, um, and looking to sort of learn as we go along, but we've got enough sort of a body of people that are really talking about Housing First as a, an opportunity to end homelessness and tailoring it to our particular circumstances. So I think it, it just needs to carry on from there and have that common goal. It seems to me that that's how it's got where it is so quickly. Thank you, Viv. Now we have a question on my left. Kia ora koutou. I'm Koawa Te Hawk no Ngāti Whātua ki o Rākei. Ke te mihi ki a koe e uh, moto nako, moto mahi, aroha mo na tangatai e naroana. Um, first, I want to of mihi to my fire. Um, I'm part of Nati Fatu as well. Now I'm peer support worker for Housing First, Lifewise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was part of the. Yeah, Kia ora fire. 
Um, I guess it's a validation that um, part of the process was engaging with those with lived experience, and we did that over six months, um, designing and looking at what are the specific views from, from lived experience. And now I'm employed, and there's a couple of others, uh, one other, you may know him as well, for Robert. Um, so, yeah, this is just the beginning fire, and um, we'll have a court order later. We will. Kia ora. Kia ora right, Thank you. Uh, we'll come to the front, but we've got one at the back at the moment, right at the back. Thank you. Kia ora. Just uh, interested, if there are any exclusion criteria, what would they be? Exclusion criteria. Exclusion criteria, considering the population you servicing, there's generally exclusion criteria for, for programs. I'm just curious as to what they might be. I don't know that it's been established. I, I think that the, um, the focus has been primarily uh, to identify among people who are homeless those that would be least likely to make it back into housing on their own. So uh, I think we've been more focused on how to identify uh, the people that have been homeless the longest and have multiple problems. Uh, I, I, um, it's almost as if if people are doing too well, uh, that this would not be the program for them if they don't need case management. I mean, everyone will need rent, so it's, it's not uh, just about ending poverty in affordable housing. It's actually the person would have to have some need of additional support without which they wouldn't be able to get into housing and keep it. He, he, he feels that uh, wasn't not quite, quite the, answered. He was that's asking. not quite the answer to the question. And the question is, if there are exclusion criteria, what would they be? I don't know. Um, I think are you saying is there anyone that would be so hard or complicated or difficult that we wouldn't work with them? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, and the answer is no. Um, the answer is no. I guess what Sam was saying is um, part of the strength of the model is it separates the tenancy management from the wraparound support. So are there things people might do that would get them evicted? Sure, because this is real world. This is not um, some kind of um, cotton wool program. This is, if you don't act legally within your tenancy, yes, you could get evicted. But what the wraparound support does is work with you in terms of, okay, that didn't go so well. What are we going to do next? Because the aim is to ensure people get into housing and stay housed. Cool. Thank you. Time has gone by in a flash. We have time for just two more. Now we have a patient young woman down here waiting for the first question and one at the back. So if you have a microphone on its way. Thank you. Sorry, I actually agreed to let someone else ask a question. But now that I have the microphone, <laughs> I'll ask a question. Now, I work with people that are mentally ill and um, it's a small social enterprise and I had the chance to have two people who were homeless live with me for a while and they were both drug addicts. Now they both got 
evicted off of the place that they got allocated to due to drug abuse. And my question is related to what happens with drug addiction, because this is a very serious issue, and I constantly work with people that struggle with a mental illness and an addiction. They get kicked out of their places. What is going to happen now? So what happens with drug addiction? Can we address that? Can we do it? I, well, I, we are hoping to house uh, people that have serious drug addiction and mental illness. That's the goal. And what happens is the same thing that happens with a lot of people. Some people uh, may uh, actually start reducing their drug use because they have to pay 25% of their income now towards the rent. So less, a little less, uh, have a cash flow problem. <laughs> and, which, uh, and then they have groceries to buy for the fridge. And there's a kind of a natural cost of living uh, with getting housed that uh, helps people to reduce. Uh, and they certainly get better psychologically just because they're in a safe, secure space. But people do lose uh, their apartments. And the most frequent uh, reason for uh, housing loss, eviction, is drug use. But not just severe drug use. It's drug use with others. There's lots of people in Auckland that are using in their apartments and uh, don't get evicted. They use moderately. The eviction usually is because the person has a social way of using and other people come into the apartment. Sometimes they won't leave and it becomes a lease violation. The person is still a client of the support services so that they've been evicted doesn't mean they lo they've lost the program. Curing addiction is a long-term process and the program is committed to helping the person find the next place, if that's what they want to try and do, or go to treatment for their drug use. We leave the decisions up to them and support them the best we can through that recovery process. But we're uh, dug in for the long haul and expect a bumpy ride. That's how we know we've identified the right people for the program. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. The last question for the evening comes in the back row. Oh, hi. Um, I know you've just got funding now, but what's the kind of timeline from here on out as a commoner to understand what the next steps are? And do the two years start right now, or do they... What's next, I guess? Yes, the two years start right now, uh, and some of our providers are already housing people. Uh, others of us are sort of still getting off the ground, so... Across the uh, providers, the teams have been recruited. Uh, having Sam here as part of the training made available to those teams, so it's it's all systems go basically. Thank you, Graham. Just very briefly, I know there will be many more questions here tonight that we can't address. Could you perhaps recap, remind us what the options are for continuing feedback through your organisation, Auckland Council? It's certainly, Greg. Um, so, uh, I guess one way of giving feedback is actually through the current annual plan process that's uh, currently being consulted on through to the 27th, so through to next Monday. So you can go on to uh, Auckland's, um, Auckland Council's webpage or uh, Shape Auckland, as you mentioned before, and uh, actually, you know, actually make a formal submission. Um, certainly, um, email is at the e email address you gave previously, um, Auckland Conversations at uh, AucklandCouncil.co.nz, .govt.nz. Sorry. 
and um, you know we, we will respond to any other queries that come through um, or come and have a chat afterwards. Graham, thank you. Thank you, panel members, and thank you, uh, our live audience tonight. Thank you for being patient. We certainly appreciate all the questions we heard. I'm sure some of those answers will provide valuable insights for all of you. Now, as we wrap up, I would like to invite Councillor Penny Hulse to the stage. Thank you. Um, thank you for a wonderful evening. Thank you for the extraordinary audiences that we seem to have at these conversations. So bless you all for being here and showing your compassion and interest by attending. Something shifted in Auckland, I think, last winter when Te Puya Marae opened its doors and brought the homeless in. And suddenly we saw a different face of homeless and it no longer, I think, as Sam said, became the accompaniment to walking down um, Queen Street. And I think our tolerance for homelessness just changed. So that's why this is so exciting. It's such a great innovation. And I just want to respect the hard and probing questions that, that we've had. This is in no way dismissing that. That's how we roll. You know, that's that's Auckland. We test each other and we probe and thank God for that. You know, we don't just kind of consume and then go away and go, well, wasn't that good? So we have probed around the edges and we've had extraordinary answers. Um, I want to acknowledge our, our panel and what you see in front of you is actually the reality of what collaboration and cooperation works like um, in, in the new Auckland. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. I just want to acknowledge um, Viv. She came into my office about 18 months ago and I was a little bit overwhelmed with this glamorous, blonde, gorgeous woman coming into my office to talk business that always makes me feel very sort of West Auckland and out of place. And um, <laughs> she, instead of, we, we went straight to homelessness. And the difference with Heart of Auckland is its pragmatic compassion. This is not sprinklers and spikes to keep the homeless people out. This is what can we do and how can we make it work? And we're seeing you right in the middle of this. And I just love that. Um, Toro, I just want to acknowledge Ngati Fatua's active and compassionate um, partnership in this area. That conversation we just saw, Fano, is exactly why this works. Someone asks a tough question, the person who answers is an old um, school pupil, and suddenly we realise, hang on a minute, we're joined up, we know each other, we've got the solution, we're working, collaborating, it's fine, we know who to go to, we know how to make this happen. Um, Moira, I've known you for a long time from your work out west, and I think the collaboration and cooperation is in this woman's DNA, and it's through your endeavours that we're bringing so much of this together in a way that is both functional and has huge authenticity and integrity. And Graham, I'm so proud of the work that we're doing as council. Thank you. I just want to leave on one really pragmatic thing. I think we can actually move on with our tenancy um, the Residential Tenancy Act, I'm very keen that we wrap that into and have talked with the man. I'm sorry, he had another engagement, otherwise he absolutely would be here. But we can wrap some of those challenges into the discussion that I'm picking up about our residential um, warrant of fitness process, and I think we can actually nail down some of those other issues there, which is long overdue. And just one last thing, completely practical, that we are working on, and I'll be taking to local government New Zealand tomorrow, is the issue of meth-contaminated housing 
houses. What a load of bollocks that is. And I'll be really blunt and say that it is... For me, this is a whole bunch of houses that our wonderful people could move into immediately. A lick of paint and a bit of wipe down and we could live in there. It's moral outrage masquerading as science and it just needs to be put in its place. So the best quote for me from the night was the definition of ending homelessness is putting people in houses. Let's cogitate on that as we go. It's utterly doable. Again, thank you so much to our extraordinary panel for the huge amount of work that's being done to our funders, to Susan for the hard work that you do for Greg for holding this together. Thank you for everyone who has made this work. Um, let's go safely and let's make this movement work. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.